children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. I didn't intend for that to be ironic. Um, is that ironic? I'm not sure if it is or not. Um, if you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be uh, reading from there this morning, Matthew 7, and uh, we'll be uh, spending our time in verses 15 through 20. So um, let's read together. Uh, I'll read. I always say that, and then I think you're all going to start reading out loud, and I'm going to have to like pace myself. So I'm going to read, and we're going to look at it together. Uh, the scripture says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, needy people, ready to hear from you and to hear from your word. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would speak to us from your word and educate us in what we need to know. Correct what is astray. Inform where we are ignorant. Fill us with a sense of appreciation and delight at your grace, with a sense of urgency for what you command, and with a sense of clarity of our purpose, why we exist. We pray that you would make it plain to us from the teaching of your word, Father. I ask for myself that you give me strength and grace to preach your word in the way that it ought to be preached with humility, with compassion, with kindness, and with firmness, knowing that these words are not our own. They are a treasure from you and deserve to be handled carefully, properly, with respect for you for the feeding of the church. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, we're in a section of Matthew where there are many contrasts, uh, four of them at least. In the, in the section where we are right now, uh, we, or in the previous contrast, rather, we found that there are two roads and two destinies, two gates and, uh, and two possibilities. The narrow road that leads to life and the wide road that leads to destruction. Jesus ends that contrast with a call to enter in by the narrow gate, to choose life, to follow him. Yet while following Jesus on that narrow road, we perhaps have been disturbed to find that there are false teachers and false followers in the church. Knowing who is true and who is not can be difficult. Knowing that everyone who claims to follow Jesus and teach the Bible can't 
be trusted can also be troubling. There's good news, though, and that's that false teaching can be identified and false teachers can and will be discovered. We'll also uh, investigate the problem of false followers and false foundations next week. Jesus presents us with a problem that we can be aware of in Matthew chapter 7. He says, beware. Along the narrow road of the Christian life, there will be those who claim to be walking that road, just another herbivore hanging out among the sheep, but they are carnivores in disguise. When the sheep set out to graze on grass, the wolf in sheep's clothing is picking out his rack of lamb and shopping for his container of mint jelly. Jesus says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Naturally, this is a cause for concern, as is any kind of failure which we're having behind me um, right now. Uh, what do I have to do there, Jer? Let us reset. Technology. Do we? All right. Wait a second. Ta-da! Okay, good. Very good. Okay, so how do we know those who are true and those who are false? How do we know if someone is a wolf or not? I would say this. If you're disturbed, first remember that this was predicted. Jesus predicts it here in this passage, and the Apostle Paul predicted it as well. He says in Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so be assured that this was predicted ahead of time. This is not some anomaly or error in the operating system of the church. Jesus said that this would happen. Second, he has given us a wolf detector. Understand that here the wolf detector runs on mixed metaphor, and if so, if you love literature and you're kind of like, make it all work perfectly for me, this is Jesus speaking, okay? He says that they're wolves, and then when he gives us the detector, these, the metaphor is going to shift. So the, the terms of detection are listed not in animal terms, but in plant terms, okay? Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he says, do grapes come from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer to this, if you know nothing about agriculture, is a resounding no. Thorn bushes may produce a small poisonous berry that Someone might think is a grape, but with any familiarity, you would know this is not a grape. This is poison. Thistle flowers might be pretty to look at, but the seed pod that it produces stings and bites and is clearly not a fig. Okay? So Jesus has given us the wolf detector. We'll come back to this in just a second. He points out his simple rule, again, by way of contrast. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Each tree will produce fruit that is consistent with its nature. If the tree is sick, the fruit will also be sick. If the tree is good, it will produce good fruit. The consumer is responsible to identify whether the fruit is good or bad and to make the right choice. And we know because we know behavior. We can judge behavior and say, that's bad and this is good. Evil fruit is offensive because fruit is supposed to be wonderful, refreshing, and sweet. And bad fruit is the exact opposite of what is expected. Have you ever bit into an apple and found a worm in there and you just kind of have that revulsive moment of like, <coughs> right? I haven't found a worm in an apple in years because I haven't eaten an apple in years, but I eat other kinds of fruit. A lot of times it's frozen, you know, put in a smoothie, right? And it's supposed to be uplifting and delightful. What is the bad fruit then of the false prophet? Ravenous wolves feed on people instead of feeding the people. False prophets destroy the truth rather than teach the truth. It's pretty consistent that false teachers do not acknowledge the narrow way to life. Jeremiah 8.11 says that they have healed the wound of my people lightly. What's being described here is when the people are concerned that something is, is going wrong, that God is bringing judgment upon the nation Israel, or that perhaps there is some sin within them that needs to be uh, corrected. They heal the wound of the people lightly. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, they say, pay no attention. God will not judge. There will be no difficulty. They don't acknowledge that there is a narrow way to life. Also, ravenous wolves exalt themselves rather than exalt Jesus. They say, pay attention to me. I have the answers. Rather than pointing away from themselves to God's word, to the power of the spirit, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says this, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. False teachers profess mighty works without spiritual reality behind them. We'll see this passage, or we've, we've seen, we, we'll, we'll take a look at this next week in greater detail. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not just those who name the name of Jesus, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What will his response be to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. They claim works. But there's no inner reality to what they're doing. False teachers present an amoral optimism. A hope for the future. A feeling of general goodwill that the universe will take care of everything or that God is a benevolent father who requires nothing. 
Notice the tragedy here in Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. They create a false sense of security. They leave their listeners asleep in their sins. They fail to warn of impending judgment. They blur the issue of salvation by making it hard to find the narrow gate. Or worse, they make the road appear much broader. Or even worse, they make it appear that all roads lead to the truth. And if you put one who listens to you on a wide road, the only alternative to to the narrow road is the wide road, and the end of that road leads to death. What do false prophets do? They tear down faith. 2 Timothy 2.17 says that their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he names to Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already happened, They're upsetting the faith of some. They bring this exceptional teaching, a strange teaching to bear on the scriptures that deters people from focusing on the gospel message, this this truth that Jesus has come, taken our sins upon himself, that those sins are paid for in his death, that when he is raised, we too can be raised with him and receive his righteousness and justifying life. And what they do is they take that message that we're to put our faith and trust in that, that we're to confess our sins, that we're to repent of them, that we're to walk in holiness and goodness, and they add other teaching to it. And it leaves their, their followers without a sense of the truth of the scripture. And they have to follow the teacher instead of trusting the scripture. And they need to walk after what this person is saying and they can no longer trust these words and so they leave their followers without a truth that settles them they upset the faith of some i wish i had numbered these so i could say like eighthly or something but i i i I can't because i didn't number them uh false prophets create divisiveness and bitterness Look at what Paul says when he talks about uh, this this, um, false teacher that he's dealing with in 1 Timothy 6.4. It says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The opposite instruction is for the people of God to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. False prophets focus on uh, large-scale divisions over the meanings of words, and they, and they focus on alternate truth. And what they do is they divide people rather than have them focus on the mission. And we heard the mission this morning in the call to worship, to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
That's the mission. When we split people and pit people against each other, then we know that what is, is being fed to the people is a false teaching. The truth, when proclaimed with grace, builds the church up in love. It promotes common life, common mission, and gracious forgiving one another. The wolf creates division and faction and stirs up conflict. Finally, false prophets promote ungodliness. 2 Timothy 16 says, avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. The result of proclaiming lies is ungodliness, a creeping, stinking, rotting infection which will slowly kill the church if not treated with heavenly medicine. And so Jesus promotes a common sense solution here. The first century orchard owner struggled without the aid of, of modern innovations in agriculture, and so he struggled to produce a yield in his orchard. He did not have time for trees which produce nothing. And so if a tree had a disease, it needed to be removed or it would infect the others. A tree that wasn't producing needed to be cut down so that room could be made for another. And so Jesus says this, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, maybe this is where the residents of Salem, right, got their idea for what to do with those who departed from false teaching. Let us throw them into the fire. Now that is not ever commanded of the church. We're never told to burn people, nor should the church ever take that up as one of their modes of dealing with people. Instead, we're told to not have anything to do with controversial people, people who stir up division, warn someone who creates factions once, twice, and then have nothing to do with them is what Paul says. Uh, we're, to, we're to go to the individual who's causing trouble privately, then with a group, then bring them before the whole church, and then to put them on the outside. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18. But it's the summer, and, uh, and so I just want to think a moment about the, uh, the, the popular and iconic movie franchise, Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay? Uh, based on the... the, the uh, progress of this latest installment it's a it's a series that probably should have been retired a movie or two ago right not doing very well right now uh, Johnny Depp you know he can't carry the franchise like this forever we, we people enjoyed him in the first or second movie but enough right so pirates when someone attempts to take over a ship that they have no right to what do we do to them if they are a pirate Right? They are properly labeled a pirate. They must be hanged, shot, run through, or forced to walk the plank. And that's what the, the, the emotional urge when the truth is on the line, that's, that's what the urge is. That's how we decide that oh, we, we want to handle this situation this way. But while the stakes are high in the church and we want to protect the truth, we need to follow the teachings of Jesus and this is more than like a bit of a kid's pirate movie. Enemies get the chance to become family, right? 
we go to them, and, and very much like what we see in Acts chapter 18, we learn that there's this convert, of Apollo, uh, this convert named Apollos, who though he was passionate, he was in error. And, and the error that he was teaching uh, was he understood some of the truth, but there was also error in there. And so look at what happens. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus, but he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then we see Apollos a couple more times now as an accepted, orthodox, good teacher. Rather than labeling him a wolf, they said, let's take this guy aside and try to fix what's going on here and see if he'll, he'll catch the right doctrine. And if he does, then off he goes. And that's exactly what happened. So rebuke, correct, and if it doesn't work, remove those teachers with a compassionate efficiency, like a vine dresser who removes a tree which fails to bear fruit. Everyone can have a place on the ship, though, a seat on the bus, a role in the body, but they must embrace the truths of the gospel. It's the church's call to confront even its enemies with compassion. Even those who oppose the gospel were to confront them with compassion. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? That the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but patiently correct those who are in error, because perhaps God may grant them repentance, and they will come to know the truth. So, Know that Jesus assures us that the wolf detector will work. You will recognize them by their fruits, he says. So the Bible establishes several tests for prophets. And they steer us when we can't tell if we're looking at a wolf or a sheep. You know, am I looking at a, a, a ripe cantaloupe or a rotten one? Right? You know, you've got to go on Pinterest, right? And, and call up, how do I know a fresh cantaloupe? I have stood there over the avocados and I have looked. How do I tell? And they're like, squish it. If it squishes, like it's, it's bad. But if it just gives a little bit, then it's good. But if it's hard, leave it and let somebody else buy it, right? You know, they, they need to come three or four days later and buy that thing, right? There are these tests. Here, here are three of them. Some of, some of you, you guys, right, you can identify with the Googling at the store, right? Is this, yeah, is this exactly what my wife wants? How do I know that I bring the right thing home, right? I want to I wanna bring home fresh fruit, yes. Okay, here are three tests, right? First is the test of subsequent events, right? Deuteronomy 18, 21. If you say in your heart, how may, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken. Yeah, how may we know that this is a word that God hasn't spoken? Yeah, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. When a preacher on the radio says that the Lord will return, thus saith the Lord, he'll be back in 1997, and then Jesus doesn't come back, and then everybody gives him a second chance, and he's like, it's definitely going to happen in 2007, and he doesn't come back. Ignore that guy forever. Amen. 
right? Done with him. Don't send him money. Don't. Ignore him. If what the prophet says is going to come to pass, and he says, thus saith the Lord, when it does not happen, you know you're dealing with a bad apple. And what do they say about a bad apple? That it can spoil the whole bunch. Rot moves from fruit to fruit. Then, second, there's the theological test. Does this lead people to worship other gods? Now, notice what's going on here in this, in this passage, Deuteronomy 31. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, so now he has said something will happen, and it does happen, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We'll talk a little bit more about actual miracles by false prophets next week, by false professors. But we need to ask in a, in a media age when, when news goes around the globe almost immediately and many will rise and say, I know the truth and they'll lead many people astray and look at the wonder and the miracle that I can do. We need to ask the question, is the focus on the good news that Jesus was sent by his heavenly father to save sinners? Amen. Here's the amazing thing about the work of the church, about the family of Jesus, is that he commanded that there be a rule book written that there is a set of interpretive rules that guide and govern all that we do. And this is the amazing thing. This is why Bible translation is so important and why it's so amazing that we can all own copies of this and we don't need to go to the synagogue or go to the cathedral and read the Bible, which is expensive to produce before the printing press. And it's like chained there. No, we can have it translated in our language. Everybody gets a copy of the rules. Here's your copy of the rules. So we ask, is the focus on the good news that Jesus was sent by his Father to save sinners? That those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved? That they do not need to pay $1,000 or installments of $79.99? Their sins will be pardoned. They'll be filled with the righteousness of Christ if they call on him with faith. Or does it focus on spiritual power? on health and wealth, on naming and claiming your own desired future regardless of the will of the Lord? Does it make a God of the self? Does it reduce the place of the creator to that of cosmic machine designed to meet our every want and need? If it misrepresents the truth, you are dealing with spoiled fruit. And then finally, there's the ethical test. Ungodly behavior leads, uh, uh, gives the prophet away. Jeremiah 23, 13. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. Those from the southern kingdom of, 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 uh, of, of Judah would have thought, of course you see an unsavory thing in the prophets of Samaria. They're rotten, horrible people. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. And then Jeremiah says, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. All 
you just, if you ripped on the prophets of the north and you live in the south now, God has laid a heavy thing on you that it's unsavory up north, but it is horrible down south, which is worse. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. So the question is, does the prophet walk in holiness and care? Does he repent when he sins? Does he admit his own flaws and admit that he needs the Savior? Does he walk his own talk? Does he reduce the holiness of God to a nothing? Does the teaching promote looseness and lightness of morality? Or does it further the idea that grace is not cheap, but that it cost the Son of God his very life? Does it teach that the grace of God is free and that we must count the cost in order to walk in his ways, that's a good sign. That grace is free, but it will cost us everything. That's the good news. We can know the ravenous wolf. We can pick him out of the flock before too many or any are gobbled up. John Stott, uh, the preacher said this, the value of the false prophet in the overruling providence of God is that they have given the church the challenge to think out and define the truth. But they have caused much damage. False prophets have given the church the challenge to think out and to define the truth. And so let's think about this for a few more minutes and reflect on ourselves. I think surely this teaching uh, in having been preserved can't just mean avoid false teachers. That can't be the only message here for us as the church. What's the alternative in this passage? Remember the, the test that Jesus said early. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. So what happens if we take the, the application and we, we flip it on its head and we go the opposite direction? Right? We, we believe that every healthy tree bears good fruit, and it's the diseased tree that bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree can't bear good fruit. And we've seen, as we've gone through this message, what the diseased tree produces. And we've seen what happens to the tree that does not bear good fruit. But let's ask the question... If a healthy tree bears good fruit, what does that good fruit look like? We believe that God's grace brings salvation and trains us to renounce ungodliness and our sinful desires and to lead holy lives. We believe that Jesus gave himself to redeem a people for himself. This is uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. A people who are zealous for good works. So the gospel brings forth good works. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the question is, what's growing on your branches? Right? It's so easy to say those false teachers, we will know them and we will club them. 
But we ask the question, what are we producing? And that's a whole different matter, isn't it? Matthew 13, 23, as for what was sown on good soil, that's the, the word of, of God preached, proclaimed, whether it is read or listened to, that's the one who hears the word and understands it. The seed lands on good soil, and it says, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The single seed of, of good produces a hundred good works, 60 good works, 30 good works. There is a, a gospel increase from the single seed of the gospel. What does Luke say? No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. We've seen this. The good person, verse 45, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus says, and do not do what I tell you? Remember the devastation and the trouble brought by false teachers. We can pride ourselves on the fact that we are not producing falsehood in the world, or we can ask the question, are we bringing forth good fruit? And if not, are we better than they are? Are we healthy? What does the, the true teaching promote? True teaching promotes faith, love, and godliness. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.4. Teach them not to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What we don't want is a bunch of people running around asking a bunch of ridiculous theological questions. Instead, what we want them to focus on is the, the, the deposit of the gospel. That's the stewardship from God. That's this, this need to tell people that there is a narrow road that they must walk, that they need to put their faith in Christ and not in other things. And that comes by faith. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says the aim of our charge, this is the goal, the end product of the gospel is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so when the true teaching is going forward and people are hearing it and receiving it and, and letting it grow in their being and allowing it to produce fruit, what will they look like? They will be pure hearted. They will have clear consciences. They will have sincere faith. And their acts will be acts of love. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. We were watching the season finale of American Ninja Warrior last night. Those guys train themselves for a million dollars. They're like, they're doing all this crazy stuff. You know, they're hanging, they're climbing, they're, they're doing these like crab-like movements with their legs and they're like hanging onto boards and stuff. They are, they have trained, they show videos of them running and jumping and, you know, doing all kinds of ridiculous stuff to, to get their physical selves ready to win a million dollars. Paul says here, 
have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Goofy theology, dumb speculation questions about things that are not pertinent to the gospel go away. But instead, we are to train ourselves for godliness, to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Discussing certain points of theology is easy. Loving God, loving others, that's hard. Being true means we not only love and defend the truth of the gospel, but we do it in a way that magnifies the truth of God's grace. We ensure that we are not sick by embracing a humble, mission-focused, orthodox approach to the gospel. Uh, Pastor Josh Harris writes this in his book, Dug Down Deep. He says, this is what I mean by a humble orthodoxy. We must care deeply about truth, and we must also defend and share this truth with compassion and humility. That's a great quote. Is it true? Look at what Peter says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so I want to challenge you this morning to assess yourself and assess ourself as a church. I don't know if that's a word, ourself, but it's right there in print. I'm, I'm making it a word. So let's ask the question then, are we good fruit people? The true children of God feed others instead of feeding on them. They teach the truth rather than concealing it. They exalt Jesus rather than themselves. They don't pass off wise words and blessings lightly, but instead they will challenge people and talk to them about the narrow way. They seek the glory of Jesus and not themselves. This means sometimes our political feelings need to be put aside. Sometimes it means that our personal tastes need to be buried. Sometimes it means that we need to strategize an approach that someone will hear because they are so far from the truth that they can't hear through our religiosity. They don't understand the Bible. They've never read it. They don't know that the Bible even has books or chapters. We need to teach them. And in a way that, that, that we, when we shape the word and we proclaim it, that, that we are shaping it for them and, and, and not compromising or changing it, but speaking it in a way that they can and will hear it. It involves patience and humility. The true children of God see Jesus just not as a gentle shepherd, but also as a kind sovereign, and they acknowledge his rule in their lives. They present a vision of the future in which the righteousness of Jesus reigns, and that means that they will speak of judgment with tears. They build up the faith of others. They promote unity in the church, and they work hard to resolve conflict for the sake of peace and common mission. Their practice is to promote godliness. And so the question is, are you part of a humbly orthodox culture? Are you building it? Are you part of it? Now, I want to try something. I want to show you. Um, okay, let's talk here about what that could look like. Okay, grace, right, is the humble, forgiving, 
loving, compassionate character of God towards sinful humanity. God is the most gracious creature in existence. You look at the life of the Lord Jesus, what you see is grace overflowing, but it is also bounded by truth. Truth is God's standard, his character and teaching that he calls us to live out. We're called to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so there is a a spectrum, right, of low truth and high truth. There is a, a spectrum of low grace and high grace, okay? Now, we, can, we could say that there is a, a group of folks who have no focus on grace and no focus on truth. And what would this be? This would be some kind of apathy culture in a church, right? This organization would uh, just be a husk of a church, a church in signage only. The building thinks it's Christian, but the people inside of it don't act that way, right? Just a pile of dead, meaningless traditions and words that keep a passionless passionless club functioning and their lights on. Apathy culture, not a church, not God's people. You can have a high focus on grace, right? That would be over here, and a low focus on truth. You know what this is? This is like hangout hippie culture, right? Hangout culture. Yeah, here we go. Where uh, everybody gets along, but there's a lack of standards. When someone sees sin in another's life, they fail to bring it directly to them lovingly. The greatest value is that no one feels awkward, no one fights, no one is hurt. There are no uncomfortable conversations ever. There's no private conversation, and if there was, the one confronted might not listen because they have learned the rules of the culture, and that's love is all we need. This crowd is together, but not one, not growing, not progressing in holiness, and ultimately, they're unable to call people to be zealous for holiness and good works, because there is no mission here. There is only fellowship. Those who promote this and live there are living in a false understanding of truth. Now, you can have an emphasis on truth and very low emphasis on grace. And this is what I think we could call a call-out culture. Making sure everything's still up there and I'm not just like drawing on my little tablet here and nothing's happening. This culture is committed to truth, but there's little value placed on showing grace. Under the surface, there's a muttering and complaining and a dissecting and a fault-finding of others. On the surface, there's an emphasis on doing everything right, and anything flawed or inconsistent must be pointed out and dealt with. There's no room for, for overlooking the flaws of others. And our own flaws must be hidden out of sight or embraced, so we attempt little because of our own smallness. The emphasis on holiness and rooting out of sin is prevalent, but embracing the, the, not embracing the truth that sin on some level will always be present in the people of God. Grace is a dangerous thing in this culture. How will the people feel wrong if we don't regularly point out their wrongness? Calling out creates separation, it creates fear, it promotes the wearing of masks and turns Jesus into a sinister judge. 
when he is by his nature a gracious savior. Those who promote this and live there are living in a false understanding. And so let's just say that none of these are what Jesus is creating. Instead, where grace is high and truth is high, there is a call in culture. Jesus successfully welded grace and truth together. And we would do well to study him, to study those accounts of him interacting with people who are not living out a gospel uh, lifestyle to see if we can pick up on the techniques that he uses, like a child watching someone do a magic trick, right? I'm not like, oh, that's amazing. That person's a sorcerer. I'm like, how did he do that? Let me watch it again. Let me watch it again. There's a trick there. From a heart of love, we commit to dispensing grace as well as an uncompromising stance on the truth. We love and bear with one another, but we also carefully truth tell to one another. And when someone is attempting to speak to us, we make every effort to truth listen. And this creates this call in culture. The call is committing to the truth, right? We are called into the life of God and into God's kingdom and into his culture. And so we speak the truth when it's needed. We don't shy away from necessary conflict and confrontation, but we do so with a heart of love and a commitment to humble graciousness. If we're wrong, we say, I was wrong. So so the call is to the truth. The in is the commitment to grace. It means that the ultimate point of the calling is to bring people into relationship in grace and to continue to treat them with grace and love. We tell the truth and we tell it in love because we want to see the church living in reconciliation to God and to each other. Any group of people who spend more than a year, a day, a month together will hurt each other. And they will need to have this constant, ongoing repair. False prophets and ravenous wolves cannot build this. But the true children of God, walking in his ways, clothed in humility, empowered by the Spirit, embracing and teaching the truth, we can build it as he builds it through us. And so, let me close by saying this, let me challenge you to embrace community. If your Christian life is a a focus on yourself and on your own personal spiritual development, let me say this, you will only go so far alone. You can go further together. We're going to have a small group emphasis over the summer with an emphasis on leader training and on forming groups. I am hoping that you will come and find out how to how to build community and to be part of community. Second, consider the goal. What does true fruit bring into existence? Something like exactly what happened when Jesus dealt with a sinner and said, your sins are forgiven. And all of the the people who were focused on truth were like, what is going on? How can you tell her that, that her sins are forgiven? And then he said, go and sin no more. Grace and truth. Grace and truth calling her in to the kingdom of God. And then third, commit to increase your fruit output. 
We'll give Jesus the final word as we close. Jesus said this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And just to remind us whose idea this all was in the first place, he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Are we praying that the Father builds his kingdom through us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we ask that you would do great and mighty things through your people. The Bible says that we have a treasure in earthen vessels. These poor, worn out, messed up bodies that you've given us are the instruments by which you call us to glorify you and to build your kingdom. And so we ask, Father, we pray that you would accomplish your will through us. Bring your kingdom into existence. We pray by your grace, for your glory and for our joy, that you would continue to use us as a people who call people to the truth and do it in a gracious way that makes them feel as they are part of a community, that they are loved, that they are cared for. And that we are not constantly expecting their every move, expecting sin ready to pounce on them, because that is not the way that you treat us. And so we come to you, Lord, and we say that we believe that you have done much good through us as a people, as a church family. We say we desire that that fruit would increase. We pray that you would keep us free from doctrinal error, that you would protect us from those who would abuse this family. But to protect the family is not enough. The family must do what the family was created for, and that is to wait, to depend, to pray, and then to act, and to act in service of building your kingdom, Jesus. We ask that you would do it through us as you empower us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.